What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Ishmaelite traders. Remember, Joseph has done nothing to deserve any of this, and he finally gets to Egypt, and the Ishmaelite traders say, hey, we can make even more money now if we sell Joseph to someone else, and they sell him to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guards. Now, in the midst of this horrible situation that Joseph's in, you know, it seems that, you know what, there's nothing going But we're told something very important. We're told that the Lord was with Joseph. In the midst of this trial, in the midst of all these hardships that Joseph has been dealing with from the pit now all the way to slavery here in Egypt, God is still with him. You know, so often we think that if God is with us, everything should be perfect. Everything should be easy. Everything should be nice. I mean, if God's with me, I shouldn't have problems and trials and issues. I mean, God's with me. Everything should go well. But that's not true. That's not the way it works. God can be with us in the midst of anything because the Word tells us God never leaves us nor forsakes us. And I think this is something very important for us to take note of as we're thinking of ways in which to respond to trials. The first thing I want you to take note of is that God is always with you, especially in the midst of your difficult trial. I think one of the enemy's tools when we're going through things is to try to convince us that we're on our own, that it's just us, that God's not with us, and we got to deal with this stuff in our own strength and our own power, and you're on your own, and surely if God was with you, you wouldn't be going through this. Surely if God was with you, you wouldn't be suffering this. Surely if God was with you, and the list goes on and on of the lies that he brings into our mind, and sometimes we buy into that and think, God isn't with me in this. And if we buy into that, it brings another problem. We don't look to the one that we don't find there. We don't look to God for his strength. We're not going to look to God for his help if we don't actually believe that he's with me to help me get through this trial that I'm facing. We need to understand we do not have to face anything alone. You know, at the end of Paul's life, he writes that as he's there on trial, that none stood with me, but the Lord was with me. And it's a sad statement that he makes of all the people that he invested in, all the churches that he planted. When he was on trial for his life, he's there by himself, but he realizes, I'm not alone. Even though no person came to join me, even though no one came to support me, you know what, who was there with me? The one person that really matters. God was with me. He doesn't forsake me. And, you know, in life we might have that. We might have difficulties and trials where no other person helps us. No other person is there with us. But we're never alone because God is always there and his resources are always available to us to get us through those trials. And we need to remember this. I think this is one of the first starting things as we you know, think of how should I respond to a trial? Remember who's there with you and remember what he has to offer you to get you through it. And I think it's important to understand that God's plan is oftentimes to help us get through the trial as opposed to help us get out of it. I mean, I would imagine that the majority of our prayers when we're in a trial is, Lord, get me out of this. Lord, take this situation away from me. Lord, get this person out of my life. Lord, whatever it is, it's usually, I want it removed. Because if we think it's removed, I don't have to deal with it anymore. It's so much easier. But I have found, and you see through Scripture as well, and, the, and you look through people's lives like we hear, see with Joseph, that God is more often saying, you know what, I'm not going to remove it. Instead, I'm going to help you through it. I'll be there. I'll give you all you need. I'll sustain you. I'll give you strength. I'll help but we're going to walk through this together, and I'm not going to pull you out of it. 
Verse 2 tells us this. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Notice two things here. God is with Joseph, but also now Joseph is successful. And notice where his success is. It, it lies in a slave to his master, Potiphar, the Egyptian. So God's with Joseph. Joseph prospers in the midst of the trial. Notice the prosper. We think, well, if I'm going to prosper, then the Lord's going to have to remove me out of the trial in some better situation where I can truly prosper. It's saying, no, no, no. I'm going to prosper you in the situation you're in. I'm going to prosper you in this trial. I'm going to prosper you as a slave in Egypt. I'm sure thinking, hey, if you want to prosper me, Lord, take me back to my family. Let me prosper as a shepherd. Why don't you prosper me like you prospered my dad? You know, give me lots of flocks and herds. That's how I want to prosper. God says, no, no, I'm going to prosper you right here. In the midst of, in the midst of this situation, you didn't do anything to get into this, but now you're here to prosper you right where you're at. And notice we're told specifically how Joseph prospered in verses 3 through 6. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Notice that it was Joseph's service to Potiphar that God prospered. God made all that Joseph did in service to Potiphar prosper. And there are two important things that I want us to note from what we see in verses 3 through 6. The first thing is the one that would be very difficult for Joseph to do, very difficult for you and I to do if we were stuck in the situation that he was in. He chose, he made a choice to say, I am going to diligently serve this person who I don't think I should be a slave to, who I didn't ask to be in this situation, who I don't want to be under, but yet this is where I'm going to be faithful to serve this man. Now Joseph could have said, you know what, hey, I'm not serving this Egyptian heathen. I'm part of God's chosen people. I mean, I shouldn't be here. Why would I ever even dream of serving this man? Joseph could have said, hey, God, you can get me out of this mess if you want to. And since you're not getting me out of this mess, I'm not serving you anymore. And I'm not serving this guy anymore. I'm not doing any of it. He could have just sulked and whined and complained. And yet he just served Potiphar. And God blesses that diligent service. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says this, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. You know, when we're in a trial, we often miss the importance of this verse. Notice it says, in whatever you do, which includes when we're in trials, which includes when we're in circumstances and situations that we don't want to be in, that we don't enjoy, that we don't like. It's not just, oh, well, whenever you feel like it, then you, know, you should do things unto the Lord. Whenever situations are good, then do things unto the Lord. No, no, no. It says, no matter what the circumstances, do your service unto the Lord and not to men, and the Lord will reward you for that. The second thing I want you to take note of about how we should respond in a godly way to trials is in our trials... We need to do everything unto the Lord and trust that he will reward our work towards him. You know, doing things unto the Lord when everything's going great, that's not that hard. You know, all these blessings are coming, life's good. You know, doing things unto the Lord in that situation isn't that hard, but it gets very hard when trials are there, when life's not be working out at all, when the circumstances are difficult and it's like, here. I still got to do it to you, Lord? Yes. That's the time when we're really challenged. That's the time when it's really hard to say, Lord, in spite of my circumstances, in spite of what's going on, I still will do everything unto you and serve you the way that I should. 
That's what Joseph does, and God blesses him for it. And as God is prospering Joseph's service to Potiphar, I want you to note what Potiphar understands as he watches this. He sees Joseph's service to him, and he sees it prosper in just a a powerful way. And notice what verse 3 tells us. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hands. So not only does you know, Potiphar think, wow, i got a great slave here in Joseph. He's a hard worker. He's doing lots of stuff. But he realizes the prosperity that's coming from Joseph, the things that he invested, things that he's working in, you know, wow, look at what's happening with that. And he realizes it's not because Joseph's so great. It's not because Joseph's so wonderful as a slave. There's something bigger here. He realizes that, you know what, the Lord is with this guy. And that's why what he's doing is prospering. That's why what he's doing is having this great result. And Potiphar comes to that recognition, comes to that realization. And I'm sure part of that came from the reality that Joseph was saying, you know what, I'm willing to serve you unto the Lord. I'm not going to complain and whine and and have this horrible attitude towards you. I'm willing to give my all unto the Lord. And the Lord is now blessing this. And now this man looks upon Joseph and what he's doing and he recognizes God's blessing is upon this. And we're told that God blesses the house of Potiphar. Why? For Joseph's sake. Because Joseph was this man who was in this situation that God was with and that God was prospering. And the man who benefited greatly from that was Potiphar. By Joseph's trust in God, by his diligent work, the blessing of God, Joseph showed Potiphar that God was real. You know, I think this is something that as followers of Jesus, we need to realize. The power that we have to influence the ungodly world around us, especially in these types of situations where we're going through trials, where we're in situations that we don't want to be in, where we have opportunity to serve those who don't know Christ, we have an opportunity like Joseph did to Potiphar to help them see the Lord. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Right before it, he gives this whole thing about, you know, you don't hide your light, you let it shine. But he's saying, here, one practical way that you and I shine is through the good that we do. And that our good works towards others will be seen by them. And notice the result. Not pat you on the back, not say, well done, buddy. No, they're going to glorify God if we're doing it right. That's what we want to see. That should be our heart's desire. Lord, I want to serve in such a way. I want to live in such a way. I want to treat these people in such a way that they turn around and give glory to you because of it. And we're not told all the details here, but we know that what Joseph did, it brought Potiphar to this place where he saw the light of Joseph shining in his good works and he gave glory to God. He realized the prosperity came from God and that you and I have the ability to make that same impact on people that we have around us. And I think we need to ask ourselves a question. Are the places that we are in blessed because we're in them? Let's start with your work. Is your work blessed Because you are there. Do they see God in you? Are you one of the best workers that are there? Are you someone who serves unto the Lord? And so it doesn't matter if the boss is watching. It doesn't matter what's going on. You still give it your all. Do people say, hey, I want to hire more Christians? Sadly, a lot of times it's like, I'm never going to hire a Christian again. That should never be the case. We should be in the field where it's like, hey, when they see you and they recognize you work the way you work because you're a follower of Jesus, to say, hey, you got any more followers of Jesus? I'd love to hire them. I want more of those people here because I recognize what the Lord is doing in you. In the school you attend, is it blessed because you're there? Do people see the power of God moving through your home, your family? Are you shining the light of Christ in those places? So they see your good works glorify God. You know, Joseph at this point in time doesn't have any clue that Moses in the future is going to record his life, spend a fourth of, you know, the book of Genesis on him. 
He doesn't know that we tonight will be studying and reading through his life and bringing the example that he sets. And I bring that up because, you know what, we don't know who's going to be watching us. We don't know what our integrity, what our godly response, what our service to the Lord will do as it impacts people around us. You don't know who it works looking at you. And I guarantee you, if you let it be known that you're a follower of Jesus, all of a sudden people are going to start watching more closely. They want to see what your life's about. Oftentimes maybe they just want to see you fail and they want to critique it. But you know what? Their, their eyes are on you. And now you have this opportunity. Hey, I want to be someone who's a light here. Family, friends, neighbors, school, wherever. We have this great opportunity to impact those around us. Third thing I want you to take note of about how we should respond in a godly way to trials is this. Our response to trials is a great opportunity to be a witness for God and a blessing to those around us. This is something I think, you know, helps you see the bigger picture. And I'm sure Joseph, as he's first thrown into this situation, why me? Why this? You know, I mean, what did I do to deserve any of this? Why do my brothers hate me so much? Why am I a slave? I mean, I went from you know, favored in my father's house to slave in Pharaoh's. And I'm sure there was all these thoughts of, you know, why am I going through this? But yet the bigger picture is, how can I reach the people who are now and presently around for Jesus? Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how bad it is, what can I do to be a light right where I am? And if we can have that perspective of, you know what, the trial might have brought these people into my life or might have changed my direction here or might have done this or that, hey, I just want to be a witness for the Lord wherever he has me presently. Not trying to run from it, not trying to get out of it, just trusting the Lord can get me through it. And as I'm going through it, I want to be as big of a light as I possibly can to enhance my witness for the Lord. So we've seen how Joseph has dealt with trials in a godly way, and now we're going to see how he deals with temptation in a godly way. Notice what we're told in verses 7 through 9. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There was no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything uh, from me but you, because you were his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So the first thing we're told here is an important little detail that, that Joseph, he's a handsome guy. You know, he's a, he's a good-looking individual, and Potiphar's wife takes note of that. We're told that she casts longing eyes on him. She sees that he's a handsome guy, and all of a sudden she's thinking, you know what, I would love to sleep with Joseph. And she's not a subtle woman at all. She comes up to Joseph and she says, lie with me. So here you have this guy who's most likely in his late teens, and you most likely have a beautiful woman coming and asking him this because Potiphar, being high up as the captain of Pharaoh, the, the guard there, most likely that, that higher position, you know, very likely that he had a beautiful wife. And so you have this beautiful woman coming to this, you know, maybe 18, 19-year-old guy and saying, hey, lie with me. And now he's faced with this big temptation what do I do here? How do I respond to the temptation now that is put before me? And notice verses 8 and 9 give us four responses. Four ways in which, you know, ultimately it starts with one response and then four reasons for why. But notice there, the beginning of verse 8 says, but he refused. That, that's the start of it all. Okay, here's the temptation. Lie with me. No, I refuse to do that. But then he goes on to give four reasons why. Well, why am I refusing this? Why am I not giving in to this temptation? Why am I not indulging in this type of behavior with you? And so first he says, I refused. And then he gives some reasons. 
These are great reasons that we need to hold on to as well because, yes, we should refuse sinful temptations, but oftentimes we're not willing to because we don't feel like we have good enough reason for it. And I want you to note some of the reasons here that Joseph gives. The first reason Joseph gives for why he refused to sleep with Potiphar's wife is because of what he has to lose. Notice what he says. Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. He has committed all that he has to my hands. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me. You are his wife. And Joseph has like the, the story that everyone would love. I mean, he comes in, he, he's sold into slavery, and he goes from that lowly slave status to the man who has now overseen all that Pharaoh, uh, that Potiphar has. I mean, that's an amazing story for a slave to be there. And it's like, hey, Potiphar has placed everything under my charge. Everything in his house I rule over, except for one thing, you, because you're his wife. But he realizes, you know what, if I commit this sin, if I sleep with you, I'm going to lose it all. All this that I have, all that I've been given, is going to be gone if I commit this sin. One of the reasons we should refuse temptations of sin in our life is because what it will cause us to lose. You know, I know many men who have given into sexual sin and has caused them to lose their families. It's caused them to lose their jobs. It's caused them to lose their dignity and their friends. And with each one of them, after they've lost all that, I've never talked to one who said, oh, it was worth it. I'm so glad I did that. I'm so glad I entered into that relationship and, and engaged into that sexual sin. I feel like it was worth it. They're always saying, I wish I wouldn't have done it. Look at all I lost. And they're just full of regrets. And for many of them, there are things that they lost that they're never going to get back. The second reason Joseph gives us for why he refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife is because she's another man's wife and doesn't belong to him. His wife doesn't belong to Joseph. She's a married woman. There's no way he's going to engage in this. You don't belong to me. I'm not going to do this. This isn't right. You know, as Christians, there are relationships that we have no business engaging in. There are relationships that we should never have. The Word of God makes it very clear. They're sinful. As a Christian, we should never have a romantic relationship with a married person. And if we're married, we should never have a romantic relationship with someone who isn't our spouse, period. As Christians, we should never be in a romantic relationship with an unbeliever. So when we're tempted to enter into ungodly relationships, we must refuse them. The third reason Joseph gives for why he refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife, notice what he calls it, great wickedness. He says, how can I do this great wickedness? I think this is something that's so important. Joseph understood what this was. And I'm sure in that culture, maybe even more so than in our culture, it was not referred to in that way. You know, our culture doesn't call this great wickedness oftentimes. Oh, if the two love each other, it's okay. With all sorts of reasons of why you can engage in that type of behavior. But Joseph realized, no, it's great wickedness. Why? Because God says it's great wickedness. And because of that, I want nothing to do with it. I'm going to refuse it. One of the most important things we must know if we're going to refuse sin is to realize how wicked it really is, how sinful it really is. And that's why I get disturbed in our culture that tries to take things that God says is wicked and say it's not. Because there are people who buy into that lie and they think, well, okay, I can do this because it's not wicked, it's not sinful. Yes, it is. Who cares if the culture says it's not? We need to realize God says it and therefore I should refuse it. I think it's interesting that we so often want to rename things so that it softens the reality of what it really is. Hostility and temper, you know, that's just self-expression. Pride's just self-esteem. Gluttony is just the good life. 
Covetousness is just trying to get ahead. Perversion is just an alternative lifestyle. Adultery is just a cry for help in a bad marriage. I mean, you go on. The reality is, no, it is great wickedness, and we need to call it what it is and see it for what it is, or else we buy it and you know what? Yeah, it's not that big a deal. It's not that bad. I can do it and not refuse it. Joseph understood what he was being asked to do, and he was not willing to engage in it because he knew what it was, great wickedness. So first, he refuses because of what he would lose. Second, because she didn't belong to him. Third, because it was great wickedness. But the fourth reason, I think, was the most important to Joseph, and it should be the most important to you and I as believers as well, and that is because it was a sin against God. Joseph said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph's ultimate reason for saying, you know what, Potiphar's wife, I will not sleep with you. Why? Because that would be a sin against God, and I am not willing to sin against God. So I refuse to do that with you. You know, this is really the source of Joseph's beautiful integrity that we see through his life. It's this recognition that, you know what, I'm not willing to sin against God. You and I need to realize that first and foremost, that's what our sin is against. It's against God. You know, we can convince ourselves, oh, this is only going to hurt me, or this is only going to influence so-and-so, and we kind of try to justify and make it you know, seem like it's okay And we usually forget the most important person of all, and that's God. Oh, no one's going to see it. Well, God will see it. No one's going to be influenced. Just me. No, no, God will be because it's a sin against him first and foremost. And so when we're tempted to sin, the first thought that we should have in our minds is, what would God think? If I were to engage in this, what would God think about it? What would he say about this? Is this something that he would approve of, or is this something that he would be very saddened by? You know, our unwillingness to refuse sin, one of the biggest things it reveals is not just our sin problem, it reveals our relationship with God problem. You know, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so you can see a lack of love in your relationship with God when you're unwilling to refuse to obey Jesus. If you love me, keep my commandments, but, oh, well, here's a commandment that I don't want to keep. Here's a sin that I want to indulge in, and I refuse to say no to that one. Well, that just doesn't show I have a sin problem. It also shows I got a problem with really wanting to obey Jesus, with really wanting to love him. note of about how to godly or a godly way to respond to temptation is we must refuse sinful temptation because of what we will lose. It does not belong to us. It is great wickedness and it's a sin against God. Sometimes it's as simple as that. You got to refuse to say yes to something that you want to. I'm not going to do it. Even though there's something in me that desires it, I realize that there are so many consequences. I realize this is wrong before the Lord, and I'm going to make a choice to say no. Even though my flesh wants me to say yes. Even though there's parts of me that would like to indulge in this, I'm going to say no, I'm going to refuse it for these reasons. So that's the first example of Joseph, a wonderful one, him refusing to engage with Potiphar's wife, but he's going to have to do something else because she's not going to give up on him. Verse 10. It was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Joseph was very successful. She comes to him. She says, lie with me. He resists it. He says, no. He gives these four reasons why he won't do it. And I'm sure he wished that was the end of it. I'm sure he wished that she got the hint and didn't continue to pursue him. But that's not the kind of woman she was. 
Notice we're told day by day she comes to try and seduce Joseph. Day in, day out, she wants to get him to change his mind and be willing to sleep with her. You know, this is the way that Satan is with us. We'll have victory, we'll resist a temptation, and we wish, man, that's never coming my way again. That would be nice. That'd be nice if we said no once and that was it and, and we never were tempted in that way. But he's like, oh, yeah, you, you, you won that one. But now I'm coming again and again. And day by day, I'm going to keep wearing you down until hopefully one day you give in. And that's what Potiphar is trying to do with Joseph. I'm going to wear him down. I'm going to get him to a place where he finally gives in to this temptation. And notice she sees an opportunity. We're told a day comes, Joseph's working in Potiphar's house. And I guess typically there were a lot of other male servants who are there. But on this day, he's the only man. All the male servants are gone. And Potiphar's wife sees her opportunity. I'm going to go now when there's no one here. And I'm going to tempt Joseph again. And she goes and grabs him by his garment. And once again says, lie with me. And once again, he's... In this position, how am I going to respond to this temptation? Am I going to give in to it? What am I going to do? I've already refused her over and over again. She's not getting the hint. What do I do now? And we're told that while she's holding on to his garment, he flees. He runs. And she doesn't let go. And so he runs and lays the garment in her hands and takes off out of the house. Paul challenges us to do something very similar in 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Joseph is an example of what Paul is telling us to do. Flee the lusts. Flee the temptation. Run from it. Get away from it. We see him literally doing that with Potiphar's wife. She keeps pressing. She keeps pushing. She grabs a hold of him. He's left with one choice only. I got to get out of here. I can't be in this situation alone with her in my master's home. She's trying to sleep with me, so I am going to run from this situation. You know, oftentimes as Christians, we're just content with not running towards sin. But so often when we're not running towards sin, we're, we're content with lingering in it. Lingering near it. Yeah, I'm not actively pursuing it, but I'm also not actively trying to get away from it. And I find that when we're content with just kind of lingering near, it's only a matter of time before we finally give in again. And this is where we need to you know what? We need to completely flee from it. To take drastic measures to separate ourselves from the things that are causing us temptation. So if you have a Potiphar's wife in your life, you have someone who is tempting you in some kind of sexual sin, Joseph's example is a great example for you. Flee from it. Don't physically spend time at all with that person. Just completely get rid of them out of your life. And not only physically, but don't be you know, on social media with them or emailing them or texting them. You know, just completely remove the temptation of that person from you. Separate yourself from them. Why? Because you realize it's a temptation. And if I am around them and I'm constantly engaging with them, I am very likely to fall into sin because that is a struggle. If you struggle with pornography and are being tempted by that, put software on your phone. Put software on your computer. Some that blocks adult sites, others that just give an accountability partner that any site you visit will go to someone and hopefully that will be a deterrent for you. And if that doesn't work, then get a dumb phone that doesn't have any internet access to it. Take extreme measures. If you've got to get rid of a computer, better do that than continue with what you're struggling with. Do everything you can to flee the temptation. If you're struggling with drugs, you're struggling with alcohol, you're struggling with any abuse, don't hang around people who are going to offer that to you. Don't hang around people who engage in those activities and don't bring it into your home. Just keep yourself separate from it. That's the best way to not fall into those temptations. Notice that Joseph doesn't do what many of us try to do 
when we're faced with a temptation. He doesn't flirt with the temptation. He doesn't rationalize the temptation. And he doesn't try to spiritualize the temptation. He could have easily said, oh, you know, this is so you know, cute. Potiphar's wife, she's a beautiful woman, and she likes me. You know, what's a little flirting going to do? What's the big deal if I just, you know, I'm not going to sleep with her, but, you know, I can flirt with her. You know, there's no harm that could ever come from that. He doesn't go down that road because he realizes something. That's not a in it. Flirting ultimately encourages more sin. It doesn't discourage you. It encourages you to engage more and more and to go farther and farther. Fleeing is what keeps you from it, not flirting. But also, notice he doesn't try to rationalize his sin. He doesn't say, you know, well, I'm Mr. Potiphar's slave, and he wants me to do a good job, and when I do a good job, he's happy, and, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar are one, and she's not happy right now, and so, you know, the thing that's going to make her happy is if I sleep with her, and if I sleep with her, then she'll be happy, and that'll make him happy, and, and it'll just be great. I mean, he doesn't have to have some, like, weird rationalization. I throw that out there, and you're thinking, what a stupid rationalization someone would have that out purposely because almost every rationalization I've ever heard from anyone I counseled about sin is stupid. You listen to it and you're like, are you listening to yourself? You really think that is a rational reason for why you're doing this? I've never heard one that I'm like, you know what, that's a pretty good one. I can see why you want to do that. I can see why that's right. They're all like, you know, and, and the sad thing is the person who's saying it really thinks and is convinced, hey, this is good. This is rational. Why can't you see why I'm doing this? Why can't you see why I need to engage in this? And I'm sitting thinking, can't you see how foolish this is? How stupid this sounds? But yet we can be blinded by our own sin. Notice he also doesn't try to spiritualize the sin. You know, Lord, I've been wondering why you sent me here to Egypt. And now I know what it is. You know, Miss Potiphar, she has some needs. And then her husband is always down with the men in Egypt. And he's not meeting her needs. And, and you brought me here. And what an amazing thing that you did this for me so I can meet her need. He doesn't buy into any nonsense like that. The second thing I want you to take note of about how to respond in a godly way to temptation is don't flirt with it rationalize or spiritualize the temptation, just flee from it. Now the problem that we often have, if we're honest with ourselves, is there are times that we don't want to flee. We are purposely trying to flirt with or rationalize or spiritualize or just stay close to it. Why? Because we want to engage in that sin. We want to give in to it. We want what we think it's going to give us because we bought into a lie that, oh, it's going to be great and, oh, it's going to be full of rewards and, oh, it's going to bless me and, oh, it's going to do this and do that when the Word of God says the opposite is true, but we don't buy that. We buy the lie of the enemy that, hey, this is going to produce so much that I want. And so we don't flee because we don't see the damage. We only see the pleasure we think the sin is going to bring. But Joseph sees what's true. He recognizes, no, this is what it is. It's great wickedness, and it's going to bring all sorts of consequences to my life, and I am running as far as I can from this woman in this situation because I refuse to engage in this type of behavior. Well, Joseph, man, a wonderful example of how to godly respond, not only in trials, but also in temptation. You're thinking, wow, he refuses it, he flees from it. I mean, surely everything's going to turn out wonderfully for a guy who does what's right, for a guy who does what's godly. And that'd be nice as Christians, but unfortunately we live in a twisted, sinful world. And oftentimes when we refuse to engage in sinful activity with the world, they go from wanting to tempt us to sin to wanting to destroy us because we won't engage with them. And notice what happens now. Potiphar's wife changes her tune towards Joseph. Verse 13. And so it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until her mas his master came home. 
Then she spoke to him with these words, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So Joseph does what's right. He refuses. She keeps pressing. He flees, and she's holding his garment, so he literally has to flee, removing and getting out of his garment. So she still has that in her hand, and she comes up with a wicked plan to get back at Joseph for continuing to reject her offer to sleep with her. She calls the men of the house who weren't in the house at the time, and that's why she took that opportunity. And she brings them in, and she basically tells them, hey, look, this Hebrew. This is a negative thing of like, oh, look, at he didn't even bring in an Egyptian slave. He brings in a Hebrew, and this Hebrew had the audacity to try and rape me. That's what she is accusing Joseph of doing. But I cried out in the midst of it, and he ran away, but notice he left his garment because he'd pulled that off beforehand. And so she thinks she has this perfect plan. And her husband gets home and she tells the story again to him. And as you would imagine, he is furious and he throws Joseph into prison. But I want you to note something. The typical punishment for a slave trying to rape his master's wife would be death. Immediate death. So the fact that Potiphar doesn't kill Joseph leads many commentators to believe that Potiphar knew what his wife was like. I mean, if she's constantly doing this to Joseph, imagine how many other men that she's trying to lure into her bed. So most likely Potiphar was aware of the kind of woman he was married to and the kind of man that Joseph was. And he probably thought, these don't really mesh well. Everything that I've seen of Joseph says that he would never do this, and everything I see of my wife says that she would try to get him to do this, so I can't see you know, Joseph trying to force her and, but yet, she's made this accusation, and there's no way I can just let the slave go. i got to do something, and so instead of having him killed, I will place him into prison. Derek Kinder, a commentator, wrote this about this. Death was the only penalty Joseph could reasonably expect. His reprieve presumably owed much to the respect he had won, and Potiphar's mingled wrath and restraint may reflect a faint misgiving about the full accuracy of the charge. Now, something I find interesting in this whole thing, we don't see one instance of Joseph trying to defend himself. Well, wait a second. I didn't do this. I mean, I mean, this is like one of the worst charges you could be have, you know, leveled against you. You're a rapist. No, I haven't done that at all. I've been trying to resist your wife from day one here. I've never engaged in that. I keep pushing her away. She's the one always trying to come at me. He doesn't say any of this. He just quietly just Let's whatever's going to happen, happen. Very well could have been that he could have been killed. Now I bring this up because as we've been looking at how Joseph is a picture of Christ, this is another one of those ways in which we see that. Both in Isaiah and also in Matthew, Isaiah prophesies it would happen. Matthew shows the fulfillment of this, of that Jesus, as he's accused, is not going to open his mouth. He's going to stay silent. And we see that. Even Pontius Pilate is like in awe. Like, don't you know I have the power to kill you? Aren't you going to defend yourself? The religious leaders, aren't you going to defend yourself? And Jesus was silent through it all. He's innocent. He's not guilty of what they're accusing him of. He could have easily defended himself, but he willingly just chose to be silent in it. In the same way we see that with Joseph, who is an innocent victim, chooses to be silent in this. Charles Spurgeon says this, He never said a word that I can learn about Potiphar's wife. It seemed necessary to his own defense, but he would not accuse the woman. He let judgment go by default and left her to her own conscience and her husband's cooler consideration. This showed great power. It is hard for a man to compress his lips, saying nothing when his character is at stake. So eloquent was Joseph in his silence that there is not a word of complaint throughout the whole record of his life. So Joseph did what was right in the eyes of God, but yet now he is in prison. He's been accused of rape. He's now faced with another trial. 
The first trial, he had nothing. It wasn't his fault. He wasn't you know, the cause of his brother's treatment. He wasn't the cause of his enslavement. He's not the cause. Actually, he did something very honorable and godly, and yet he still finds himself in this trial. In and his tune could have changed. He could have been like, you know what, God? I served you. I did what was right. I resisted this temptation. And now look where I find myself. Forget this. I'm not following you anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. Well, let's see how he responds in prison and what the Lord does. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Notice the exact same thing happens here in the prison as it does in Joseph's slavery to Potiphar. First, we see the important reality that's the theme throughout this chapter. The Lord was with Joseph and made him prosper. In the midst of trials, in the midst of the horrible circumstances, slavery, prison, neither of which he deserved, yet God's with him makes him prosper while he is going through this. And I think it's important to note it was somewhat common for a master to give a slave who showed himself faithful more and more responsibility, even to the point where he would run things in the home. But it was not ever common for a prison guard to give prisoner the, the run of the prison. Hey, you run everything, prisoner. That's just not how it works. I am the guard. You're the prisoner. You're not running anything. You're just going to sit there and do what I say. It's amazing the, the favor that God grants to Joseph, even more so in this prison, because it was more odd to have that happen. And yet the prison guard is just like, you know what? Every prisoner is under your authority. Now, we're starting to see things come together that I'm sure if you know the end of the story, you start to see, oh, wow, that's why that happened. Joseph, I'm sure at this point in time, is close of the big plan. He doesn't know what God's ultimately going to do. He just sees in circumstances, i got to trust him. And as I do, the Lord is with me, and the Lord is making me prosper. But you know what? If Joseph was stuck in his cell like every other prisoner if he didn't have access to all the prisoners like he now does because of the role he's been given, he would never be able to come and speak to two prisoners. They're going to come into that prison, a butler and a baker, and get to speak with them and hear their dream and interpret their dream. And all these things are part of God's ultimate plan for the future. But yet in the present, God's orchestrating, he's working, he's moving, he's giving favor to Joseph in this situation because he realizes, I got something that's going to happen. And I'm going to use you in that. And I'm bringing you to something even bigger. And right now, you've gone from slave to prisoner. And I'm sure you're wondering, what in the world's happening here, Lord? Why are you allowing this? Why can't you just get me out of this? But yet, I'm just going to be faithful to you and see how you're in control and you're working. Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to to his purpose. God's working things together for Joseph's good. He doesn't know it yet. I'm sure he's pleased with each situation of how he's gained favor, but from where he was to where he is, that's still not very good. But God has a plan. God has something very good that we're going to see him do in Joseph's life, but yet he would have to hold on to this. Knowing that God will bring good, even though I don't know what that good is. That God has plan. He's doing something in the midst of all of this trial and problem and prison. and He's doing it. I believe it. But that's hard. This verse is nice. You know, we like to comfort ourselves with it, but it's hard to believe sometimes. It's hard for us to trust in and say, you know what, I'm going to believe in the good that's coming, even though I don't see it in the present. I believe it's coming in the future, even though the present circumstances tell me no good could come from this. But yet God is bigger than that. He can do it. He says it. And I think it's a wonderful story, example in Joseph's life that we see in the midst of what we would see as slavery or prison. There's no good ever coming from that. Well, God brought good. Brought great good. So in this chapter, we see three ways we should respond to trials. Two ways we should respond to temptation. 
No, when you and I face trials, we need to respond first by remembering God's with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Second, do everything unto the Lord and trust that He's going to reward your work. Lord, I know it's hard. I know I don't want to be in this situation. I don't want to serve this person, but yet I'm doing it unto you. And third, know that your response to the trial that you're in is just a wonderful opportunity to be a light, a witness for Christ. And if we truly want to be those who go into all the world and preach the gospel, go into all the world and reach people with the gospel, yes, we need to proclaim it with our words. We need to share it so people can understand it, but we also need to live in a way that's going to draw people to glorify our Father in heaven. We've got to be those lights as we also willingly share the good news. And when you face temptation, you should respond by refusing the temptation because of what you will lose, because it doesn't belong to you, because it's great wickedness, but ultimately because it's a sin against the Lord. And second, respond to temptation, not by flirting with it or rationalizing it or spiritualizing it. Just flee from it. You know, Joseph's a great picture of Jesus, but we're probably more of a better picture of Potiphar's wife. It was Potiphar's wife's sin that brought Joseph his punishment. An innocent man is punished because of the sin of another. Jesus Christ, the innocent man, is punished. Why? Because of our sin. We're much more like Potiphar's wife. Joseph is that picture of Jesus, but Jesus is the one because of our sin who was punished, who was beaten, who was crucified, who ultimately say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, we have lots of ways that we like to say thank you through songs, through words, through whatever. But you know what? I think one of the most meaningful ways to really show appreciation for what Jesus did for our sin is to do what Joseph did. Refuse to engage in it. Flee from the things that would tempt you to do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you really want to say thank you to me for all that I did for you, then show it through the way in which you seek to refuse, resist, and stay away from sin. Don't just engage in sin all you want and then come and sing songs about how much you love me and tell me how much you love me because they don't go together. Your, your words aren't connected with your actions. And so one of the best things we can do is put into practice what we see here in the life of Joseph, a man who responded to trials in a way that was pretty impressive, but also even more so how he responds to these temptations a wonderful example to us to do it. Any thoughts on what we looked at here in 39?